Lord, in this moment, there have been people in this room that have been slaves to the fear that Satan implants in them. So I pray that as you scurry up and down these rows and in the hearts of the people who are here and watching online, that you will break the walls of fear and people will leave here fearlessly following you into whatever you call them to do. And pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Warehouse. It's good to see you all. I want to talk to you real quick about risk. And every single one of us, if there is something that we have in common, it is that every one of us at some point in our life have taken some kind of a risk at some point in our life. And it was the first time you ever rode a bike without training wheels with your dad. That's risky. The first time you turned 16 and you drove the car without somebody on the passenger side, possibly mom. Watch out. Slow down. Look at that over there. And that was a risk. It was the first time a career change. You have a new job. You're gone somewhere else. First time you've decided you have a little bit of money and you want to invest in something. Maybe that's real estate. Maybe that's cryptocurrency. Maybe that's stock of some sort. And that's risky, right? When I was a teenager, it was really risky to talk back to my mom. Number one, she was a fiery Puerto Rican. So if you did have the guts to talk back to my mom, and that was anybody, that wasn't just me, that was the whole community, you would have this amazing weapon called the chancleta. And she would pull that and just wing it if you were to take the risk of talking back to your mom, right? And so everyone takes different types of risks. Last Saturday, we were over celebrating an 18-year-old birthday over at Adam's house at Dininger's, and my daughter sent my wife and I and my son Noah, she's up at Southern, boo-hoo, I've been crying a lot, and um, she sent us a, a video. I hear Deborah on the other side of the house scream. I mean, like, bah, screamed, and I'm like, what's going on? She's like, check your phone. So I look at my phone, and there's a video. Well, my daughter took a risk, and she took a video of this risk of jumping off a cliff that was well over 25 foot into a small body of water. Everyone takes certain kinds of risks. So here's what I want to do. I want to do a public survey. In your circle of influence, if it's your family is here, or your circle of friends, if you came by yourself and your friends, family aren't here, in your circle of friends that you have, if you are the person that's identified as taking risks in that group, I just want you to stand real quick. 
So if you're in your family group, in your, if, if you're married, of your marriage, I want you to stay. Only one person in this room takes risk. That's awesome. All right, here we go. So, so I want everybody to take a look. Look around. These are the people that you don't drive with on I-4. Just, just wanted to make that clear. Have a seat. So, so everyone takes different risks. What I want you to do is turn to the person that you're closest to. Turn to the person that you're closest to. And in 15 seconds each, I want you to share what is the greatest risk that you've ever taken in your life. Say, 15 seconds each, just turn. What is the greatest risk that you've ever taken in your life? Go ahead and do that. You've got 30 seconds, 15 seconds each. All right, so if you're sitting next to your spouse, if you're sitting next to your spouse, one thing that possibly could have been answered, which was not a wise thing to do, is if you looked at your spouse and said, you were my greatest risk, marrying you, that was my greatest risk. Now, how many, <laughs> you're in trouble. Ivan, you're in trouble. You're going to be eating outside today. So, so, yeah, so everybody has taken risks. So here's what I want to talk to you about today. We've been answering this question, what is church for the last eight months? And we've only gotten to Acts chapter 5. And today we're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, two chapters today. So you're going to be here a long time. No, you won't. Don't, don't panic. And what we have noticed is we answer the question of what is church through the church founders is that all of them were clearly aware of what it meant to take risks. Because at this point in the early church, the, 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 the just speaking of the name of Jesus was a major risk. And they had already been accused of being delirious and drunk, they had already been accused of being demon-possessed. They were already told to be silent. They were already put on public trial. They were already thrown in jail. They were already tortured, all because of speaking the name Jesus. And it was risky. But they did all of that. And remember the end of chapter 5, they said, all of which they rejoiced and felt that they were counted worthy, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Joy for suffering because they suffered like Jesus. Something that we typically don't talk about these days. See, they were willing to risk anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. And here's some tough questions that I want you to be able to answer today. You may not be able to answer them, but I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end to text me your answer. If I forget to do that, somebody remind me. But here's a couple of really tough questions I want you to ponder, because this is going to taste, to test the limits of your faithfulness to Jesus and the risk that you're willing to take in that context. 
of your faithfulness to Jesus. So what are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? You personally, what are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? Let me hone in on that a little bit. What magnitude of risk are you willing to take for the sake of the gospel? What magnitude of risk are you willing to take in your life, in your family, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your work? What magnitude of risk in your finances, in your personal relationships? What magnitude of risk are you willing to take for the sake of the gospel? In other words, what are you willing to sacrifice? And here, here's, here's a question that really solidifies this. And we'll come back and circle around to this at the end of today. What is following Jesus costing you right now? Ponder that for a second. What is following Jesus costing you right now? My guess is if you lived in another country, the answer to that question would dif- be different across the board. But that's a tough question here. What is it costing me right now to follow Jesus? See, the gospel demands risk, and the early church knew about this very well. True disciples, we're going to say this over and over again. I hope you walk away with this. True disciples will risk anything for the one who died for them. True disciples will risk anything for the one who died for them. I've been reading a lot of this guy who was a pastor back in the um, 50s and 60s. And um, he started to resurface. Somebody quoted him in a podcast, and I was like, who is this guy? And I started, started reading about him. His name is Tozer. And, he, and I came across this quote. When people sugarcoat Christianity and arrange it all nicely, they have, in effect, taken away the cross. Let that sink in for a second. See, the gospel demands risk, and I do not want to sugarcoat Christianity for you today. And I don't think Jesus sugarcoated Christianity, and, and, and he declared in his, um, to his disciples something very clear. He didn't sugarcoat much. And the early church remembered the words of Jesus, of the risk that it would take to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he talks about this. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, you've heard me say this before, must deny themselves, pick up their cross daily, every single day, and follow me. Jesus looks at his disciples. You want to be my disciple. Here's what is required of you. This is the risk the magnitude of the risk that it may take in order for you to follow me. Pick up your cross, pick up the torture device, put it on your back daily, and follow me. Doesn't sound like sugarcoating there. And it didn't stop there. Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit their very self? And then he brings it home in verse 26. He says, whoever is ashamed of me. Think about that. Have you ever, with your actions, with your words, been ashamed of being a follower of Jesus? Jesus is not sugarcoating anything here. 
Whoever is ashamed of me in front of their family, in front of their friends, in front of their co-workers, whoever is ashamed of me, this is harsh, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. One of the scariest verses in Scripture. I mean, it makes you, lead you to a prayer, just, Lord, don't ever, don't ever let me be ashamed of who you are and what you've done for me. Let me declare it in every bit of my actions. Let me declare it in my words. Let me share with everybody that I know. But don't ever let me be ashamed, because I don't ever want you to be ashamed of me. There's no sugarcoating there. So we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6 and 7, meeting this guy named Stephen. And at the time in the early church founder's history, which was very, very early, the disciples, the apostles found themselves incredibly busy because disciples were growing. And the church was growing, and there was even priests in the temple who were becoming followers of Jesus. And it says that all in the first parts of chapter 6. But there was a neglected part of the church, and it was the widows. And they didn't have anybody to care for the widows, so then they started to have to think of, how do we administrate all of this busy work because we can't take it on ourselves? And so the apostles picked seven men and said, you are going to care for the body so that we could focus on the teaching of the Word of God and prayer. And so one of those seven was this guy named Stephen. And Stephen, he must have been spiritually gifted because it's the description of what they say, what Luke says about him. is pretty awesome. Verse 5 in chapter 6. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, it says, a man, a man full of God's grace, still describing Stephen, and power, who performed great wonders and signs among the people. So, what is church, and what are the people of church supposed to look like? Well, here's a description. Full of faith, full of grace, full of power, and full of the Holy Spirit. If you are not full of faith, full of grace, full of power, and full of the Holy Spirit, you are full of something, but you've got to fill in the blank of what that something is. But that is what the people of God are supposed to look like and live like, full of faith, full of grace. Man, we need to be a people of grace, because there are people out there who think that the church is a miserable, judgmental bunch of hypocrites hypocrisy going on up there. We're not going to go in there. If people were full of grace, that wouldn't happen. Full of faith. If there were things that God called us as a church to do, if we were people full of faith, nothing could stop us. And full of the Holy Spirit, listening, being receptive enough to hear the voice of God. And then something part of not our Adventist culture is also performing great wonders and signs among the people. That doesn't typically happen. But that was the early church. That was the description of a leader of the early church and the people of God. That's what it looked like. So Stephen had been preaching. 
And he'd been preaching in the temple there in Jerusalem. And the temple leaders started to get a little agitated at him. They started these arguments with him. And they got frustrated. They got frustrated because this guy was filled with absolute incredible Holy Spirit fire wisdom. And they couldn't keep up with arguing with him. And so chapter 6 verse 10 says, They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave Stephen as he spoke. And then they were so angry. And they did the same thing to Jesus because they were so angry. Is they found different people in the community to spread rumors about Stephen and to spread slander and gossip. The greatest sin, this is just my personal belief, my personal belief. Okay, I think one of the greatest sins in the Christian church that's not talked about is gossip and slander. There are so many people in the church that we don't accept and we don't, uh, uh, oh, they did that, ooh. But yet we can talk about each other even if there is, you know, just 99% truth and there's that 1% lie. And by the way, 70% of communication is body language. So you can say a truth about somebody, roll your eyes, and then that does what to that truth? Understand that, that slander killed Jesus in his trial. Gossip did. And we're going to see what happens with Stephen because all of a sudden the slander worked. Because verse 11 it says, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And it worked. Because here in verse 12 it says, So they stirred up the people. With what? with the gossip and the slander. And then the elders and the teachers of the law, they heard about this, and they seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now he's on trial because of the slanderous words. And then here comes the fake witnesses. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. This was the beginning of yet another trial. The high priest asked Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1, are these charges true? He's on trial now. And I hope you take time to read chapter 7. Because it is, again, my personal opinion, Stephen preached the best abbreviated historical sermon in the whole Bible in chapter 7. He starts with Abraham and goes all the way down, and he tells the story to the people there a history that they knew about a God who was desperate to bring his people closer to them through Abraham and Moses and all of the prophets and then eventually Jesus. And it's one of the best historical sermons, abbreviated historical sermons. If you want to know all of the Old Testament and what it's about, read chapter 7 of the book of Acts. 
Read his sermon there. And then finally, at the end of his sermon, he indicted the Jewish leaders, the temple leaders, and he says, but you, he did the same thing Peter did in chapter 5, you were the ones who ignored the Messiah and you murdered him. And of course, the words used to describe the response of Stephen's audience provide a clear image of how angry they were in verse 54 of chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. The word there is enraged, which there's kind of a play on words here in the language. And, and basically, it's a phrase that implies that there was a personal injury that was inflicted at that moment. Kind of crazy. You don't pick that up when you're just reading. But as you study it, it's like, boy, they already whacked him one. Because they were enraged. They were angry. They were furious. And I don't know what in the world gnashing of teeth are. I have no way of describing the sound of it, but if you've ever been chased by a dog, or if you've ever sat on a couch next to a chihuahua, you immediately know that, that's sort of, you see the teeth? And so you see sort of a gnashing of teeth. So these people are turning into animals because they are so angry, they don't know how to be human anymore. And so it had, if it had been possible, somehow, for Stephen to calm down the temple leaders, he obviously didn't choose that path in the words that he started to say and preach. He ignored the angry response of the crowd, and while the crowd was raging with chaos and screaming and whatever gnashing of teeth sounds like, Stephen lifted up his head right in the middle of all of this, and in verse 55, there's this beautiful description of what, Peter, or what Stephen saw. It says, Stephen, again, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In other words, it was just, he just indicted them for saying, you killed this guy, Jesus, and I'm staring right at him right now. Oh, how do you think that made them feel? The crowd was insulted. Because if there was someone who was supposed to see God in the glory of God, it should be the high priest. Not this guy. Because he was a foreigner. Foreign-born, Greek-speaking follower of Jesus of Nazareth, wherever that place is. They looked down on this guy who was gifted with being able to visually see the Messiah and the glory of God and the Father. True disciples will risk anything for the one who died for them. Because at this point right now, Verse 57 is, the description is, is they would not even listen to what Stephen had to say. They covered their ears. Have you ever done that before? Someone talking, and all of a sudden you go, la, 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 la. This is what they did. They did not want to hear. They covered their ears. What a visual of adult religious men who were supposed to 
proclaim the Messiah and should have known the prophecies of the coming Messiah. But grown men covering their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, if you understand the laws of stoning, which I'm sure all of you are historians and lawyers and understand Jewish law right here, but if you understand the laws of stoning, it wasn't to torture. They would walk up, one person would walk up behind with a large stone to knock out the individual. That was how stoning was supposed to happen. And then that was to knock them out so that they can kill them the rest of the way with this barbaric method of death. That didn't happen here, apparently. They dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Here's a side note. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and we're going to learn about that young man here very soon. While they were stoning him, verse 59, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Let me ask you how familiar this verse sounds. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's a whole amazing Bible study of the parallels of the trial and death of Jesus compared to the trial and death of Stephen. If you're interested in that, um, I'll send you a screenshot. You come see me after. By his death, he is identified as the first Christian martyr. True disciples will risk anything for the one who died for them. You see, the risk of exclusion, the risk of pain, even the risk of death did not prevent him from preaching Jesus. Stephen could have walked away. He could have preserved his life by justifying and figuring out a way of saying, wait a minute, I got responsibilities. I got to take care of these widows. And if I get killed now, who's going to take care of those widows? He could have preserved the torture that he received. He could have said, nope, not now. I'm not going to do that. He could have made an excuse. He could have justified it. Because true disciples will risk anything for the one who died for them. And all of us have this threshold. All of us have this line that we draw on the sand when it comes to the level of commitment that we're willing to follow Jesus in. All of us have that. Where do you draw the line in your commitment to Jesus? What risk are you willing to take in order to be faithful to whatever Christ is calling you to do or to become? What are the consequences? Here in America, they don't put us to death because we follow Jesus. 
We learned last month that there's literally over 30 million people who suffer for the sake of Jesus every single day across the world. We don't have that here. So you have to figure out what is the risk here for me? What is God calling me to do, to commit to? You may lose some friends, at least those who thought were friends. You may lose your popularity. Oh my goodness, you might lose some followers on your social media. Lose status or self-esteem because of verbal abuse or harassment. You might get fired. A willingness to follow Christ may mean personal loss in this lifetime, but this lifetime only. Only at this lifetime would we lose something. So I want to challenge you today. Pull out your phones. Kind of weird, a pastor saying pull out your phones. Let me check my status. Let me check my snaps. Open up to your texts. I want you to text the number, the answer to a question. And that number is 94,000. So put that number in there. What are you willing to risk for the sake of Jesus? Answer that question. What are you willing to risk? What is God telling you to risk right now for the sake of Jesus? See, the beginning of my sermon, I asked, what is following Jesus costing you right now? And if you can't think of an answer to what following Jesus is costing you right now, perhaps the risk is not big enough. And the magnitude of the risk needs to grow if it's not costing you something. So challenging questions. But man, we're not doing what church is. You know, we ask this question, what is church? But we're not living it out unless we're willing to take massive risks for the sake of the gospel. True disciples will risk anything for the one who died. I'm willing to risk my relationships with friends. It's good. That comes from a high schooler. That's a big deal, by the way, for somebody in high school to say, I'm willing to risk some of my closest friends. It's a big deal. I'm willing to risk losing a friend. It's another high schooler. I'm willing to risk someone not liking me. I love this one. I'm willing to risk my future. Wow. I'm willing to risk everything. Take it, Lord. Whatever it costs, I'm willing to risk it all. I'm willing to risk my reputation to stand up 
for those with no voice. Right on. What are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? If you haven't answered that, or if you're fearful that, oh my goodness, now Pastor Meyer's going to hold me accountable because, you know, it's on you. It's between you and Jesus. But sometimes that can be ignored. So I want to challenge you, for those of you that shared, for those of you that didn't share the text that in, for those of you that didn't know the answer to the question, because, oh man, I don't want to overpromise. I don't want to underpromise. I don't want to be indebted to some huge decision. The Holy Spirit already has put it on your heart. You know what it is. But now go to the next level of accountability. And I want you to tell somebody before the sun goes down what you're willing to risk for the sake of the gospel. If you're sitting next to the person, bump them. And that bump is going to say, I'll tell you later. What are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? We know that the early church founders risked everything. But here, right now in our context, in our city, what are you willing to risk? What is the magnitude of your risk that God is calling you to? Father God, thank you for these commitments of risk. Embolden each person in this room. Strengthen them, Lord. Whatever fear they may have, I pray that they will be bold, radical followers. Regardless of the consequence, regardless of the mountain that they have to hurdle, so they have to rely 100% on you for whatever risk you've placed on their heart. There are no consequences when we do it for your glory. But we're not here long. And sometimes we want to preserve the little life we have here on earth. But that is not our life. You're calling us to an eternal kingdom and to do whatever it takes to invite others to join that kingdom, Lord. Let that burn in our hearts. Let our commitments to you, whatever is the roadblock, let us blast right through them to seek you completely surrendered, committed to you, Jesus. Whatever that internal struggle is, May it die in this place right here, right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.